Friday day of prayer in Syria saw new protests, violence, and killings. In the southern city of Daraa, a center of the unrest, thousands swarmed into the streets, denouncing the 40-year rule of the Assad family. But unidentified gunmen were seen firing from a nearby hilltop near the demonstrations. promised Friday was going to be big. It turned out to be huge. This is Banyas on the northeastern coast, all calling for the regime to fall. The picture that's been emerging on the internet from within Syria tells a story of mass protests, shootings and killings. Witnesses and human rights activists said government security forces had opened fire directly on protesters with rubber bullets, tear gas and live rounds. Far from Daraa in the northeast, chants of God, Syria and freedom rang out in the streets of Kamishli. happen. The thing about Syria since 2011 is that it's never been just one thing or another in one form or another. It's been an all of the above situation from early on. People call it a civil war, a revolution, a genocide, a proxy war. It's never been just one thing or another. It's been most if not all those things for 10 years now. That's one of the difficulties you run into when you try to learn about what's happened in Syria. What starts out as a lie or exaggeration sometimes becomes true over time. Claims of violent extremism among the Syrian opposition were initially a regime talking point, intended to delegitimize a mostly peaceful attempt at political change, similar to what had recently taken place in Tunisia and Egypt. But what took place in the spring and summer of 2011 laid the groundwork for a stalemated civil war which resulted in at least 400,000 deaths. That's very likely an undercount, by the way. We'll get to that later. And millions of people displaced. Over a long enough timeline, in large part due to conditions stoked by the Assad regime, the lie of violent extremism among the Syrian opposition did become true, in part. Let's backtrack for a second. 400,000 deaths, and counting. Again. 
Who knows what that number will be once the war finally ends and the mass graves are unearthed, however many years or decades in the future from now. People are still finding mass graves in the Balkans 20 years after those conflicts ended. One could hypothesize that Syria will be a similar case. And then there are the 5.6 million people, 5.6 million people, who have fled the country to neighboring nations or sought asylum in the United States, Europe, or elsewhere. Plus the 6.6 million, yeah, million, internally displaced people. Those are people who are forced to flee their homes to refugee camps in Syria. And lastly, there's the 13.1 million people who are currently in need of humanitarian assistance, regardless of whether or not they were displaced by persecution or warfare. These numbers were provided by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. The way that people outside of Syria talk about the country, with the hundreds of thousands dead or millions rendered homeless, it almost always revolves around the numbers. There is an old saying attributed to various authors. The death of one person is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. So let's see how all of this can impact one person. The specifics don't matter very much. Just an ordinary human being trying to live their life. Could be an adult working hard to support a family, a teenager looking at universities or trades to take up so they can become financially independent, a child being pushed to study hard in school. Doesn't matter. Anything goes for the most part. Just imagine any person. Now imagine everything this person considers to be normal getting turned on its head, if not outright destroyed. Imagine this person's neighborhood being slowly demolished by bombs that land unpredictably and kill indiscriminately. Imagine having to leave your home or watching it get destroyed, ending up in a camp full of thousands of people just like you. You spend your days waiting in line for food and other supplies, looking for whatever employment you can attain, and then sleep in a shelter that makes your old apartment or house look like a paradise. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones with money or education or other traits that makes it easier to be granted asylum elsewhere. Or maybe your only option is to put your trust into smugglers who see you and your family as nothing more than a commodity. These are the people who make a living by manipulating desperate souls into crossing the Mediterranean Sea on old overcrowded vessels and have no reason to care if anyone on board drowns other than the need to purchase or steal another old, rickety boat. For those who aren't granted asylum abroad and are unwilling to risk their life or their family's lives crossing the sea, for understandable reasons, they're the ones who end up staying in refugee camps either in Syria or neighboring nations. When people who live in safe, comfortable countries look at Syria from afar and pontificate on ideas proposed by different schools of geopolitical thought, they almost always do so without understanding what people from Syria have experienced before and after 2011. Western observers haven't felt the grief of family or friends dying far too young at the hands of a fascist government. And yes, this, this group includes myself. I'm not Syrian. I've never been there. I don't even speak Arabic. I've read a couple dozen books and talked to several people from different parts of the country, but I wouldn't call myself an expert. I call myself a nerd who has followed events in Syria since 2011, and he wants to finally put his bachelor's degree in history to good use. So, what happened to Syria, as this podcast is called? Specifically, what happened in 2011? Why is that year so important? One key detail is that most people aren't willing to be the ones who break a precedent. 
especially if the possible consequences include being tortured to death. But it's another matter entirely when people hear that someone else has done something that was unprecedented up until now. It's one thing to be the first person who shouts, the people demand the fall of the regime, or the first soldier who defects to the opposition. Most people aren't willing to be that first person. But what if you see or at least hear about others doing that? Perhaps you're a little more bold then, and that's how new precedents are set. That's when the floodgates open. That's when new chapters in history begin. That is what happened in 2011. This is a story about how the unprecedented became a daily phenomenon. How the hopes and optimism associated with revolution eventually gave way to the Syrian civil war. You're listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world. This is the first episode of what will hopefully be the first of several seasons. Season 1 will focus on 2011, season 2 on 2012, so on and so forth. A lot of people, especially individuals on Twitter, seem to have forgotten about the early years, before ISIS and tensions between international powers dominated headlines about Syria. The time before that was marked by a fascist dictatorship that came to power via military coup in 1970. Their hold on the country was absolute, though not unchallenged, for 41 years. There were occasional protests and insurrections to which the regime always responded with massacres and torture, but never a nationwide movement to reform or outright overthrow the government until 2011. And thus we begin Episode 1. And thus we begin Episode 1, The Calm and the Storm. There's a commonly held perception that some countries just can't handle democracy, or freedom in general. Some places, such as Iraq and Syria, are often described as unstable, as though they're just inherently that way. Some people, mostly Westerners, say that those places need a dictator or some other authoritarian strongman to enforce peace and stability with an iron fist. That's a myth. That conclusion is simply false. If anything, the last hundred years prove that authoritarianism sows the seeds for widespread violence, unrest, and civil conflict decades down the line. If nothing else, authoritarianism causes instability, not stability. Syria is paradoxical in many ways. It has one of the longest histories of any place on planet Earth, going back to the cradle of civilization. But it's also a young nation-state. Damascus, Aleppo, and other cities have been inhabited for several thousand years. They've been conquered and fought over by an extraordinarily long list of empires, from the Mesopotamian kingdoms to ancient Egypt and the Hittites, to the Greeks, the Romans, and Islamic caliphates, just to name a few. It's located at a crossroads of multiple trade routes known as the Levant region where the Silk Road split into two routes leading to and from Europe and North Africa. Caravans laden with goods from China, Rome, and other economic powers in the ancient, medieval, and early modern world converged on Damascus and Aleppo. Syria became what it is today because it was located at the very center of the Old World, an economic hub and military strongpoint desired by every major power. This turbulent history, 
with influence from the East, West, and elsewhere, resulted in a remarkably diverse population, especially in terms of religion. Dr. Samir N. Aboud writes in his book, Syria, quote, Syria is an extremely heterogeneous society, with Sunni Muslims, Alawis, Ismailis, Druze, Shia Muslims, as well as Greek Orthodox, Maronite, and other Catholic sects. Population breakdowns by religion are not entirely accurate, but close to 10% of the population was Christian, and the remaining, the remaining 90% Muslim, the majority of which are Sunni Muslims, unquote. We'll go more into detail about each group mentioned in future episodes. For now, we have a lot of ground to cover. The last empire to truly rule over Syria were the Ottoman Turks. The French attempted to colonize the Levant after the Ottoman Empire collapsed, but this proved to be a misbegotten venture. Neither a divide-and-conquer strategy nor old-school brutality, aided by World War I-era artillery and bombs dropped from airplanes, could break native resistance to French domination. We're going to come back to the Great Syrian Revolt a lot in future episodes. The similarities between what happened in the 1920s and the 2010s, especially the resemblance between French colonial violence and state terrorism practiced by the Assad regime, are simply astonishing. Undoubtedly, the most important consequence of French colonization was the creation of the modern Syrian military. It attracted recruits mainly by providing an opportunity for education and social advancement for men from ethnic and religious minorities, who were traditionally subject to discrimination by the Sunni Muslim elite. This would lead to the domination of Syrian politics by military officers for decades to come. These officers would oftentimes show favoritism to those who shared their ethnic and religious identity. The country gradually gained independence from a French empire weakened by World War II and financial ruin. The Syrian Republic was a fledgling nation-state at a time when Arab nationalism and coup d'etat were the dominant political trends in the Middle East. Hence, it eventually came to call itself the Syrian Arab Republic. Those who are not ethnically Arab, especially people of Kurdish descent, were officially subject to discrimination and harsher-than-average treatment, even when almost all Syrians were oppressed by authoritarian regimes. The days of peaceful political process in the country came to an end after the 1948 war that resulted in the State of Israel being established. The Syrian military was humiliated by the, by the Israeli victory, and the army's chief of staff, Husni al-Zaim, retaliated by orchestrating a coup against President Shukri al-Khawatli while the latter was undergoing medical treatment. Rumors of CIA involvement in the 1948 coup d'etat have circulated for decades. No one could have predicted the long series of coup d'etat in Syria that would take place from 1949 to 1970, the second of which would result in al-Zaim being overthrown and executed after only four months in power. The list of names, plots, political subterfuge, and other geopolitical intrigue in this span of time is too damn long and complicated for us to do justice in this first episode. One important development was the passage of a, quote, emergency law, unquote, passed in 1963, supposedly to protect the nation from an Israeli attack, but in reality, a measure to criminalize political opposition. The state of emergency was one of the proverbial nails in the coffin for democracy in Syria, though not the very last one. A long series of conspiracies, coup d'etat, assassinations, street fights, riots, and a short and unsuccessful attempt to unify with Egypt 
plus multiple wars with Israel, eventually resulted in an Air Force general named Hafez al-Assad seizing and gradually consolidating absolute power over Syria. He ruthlessly eliminated all opposition within the ruling Ba'ath party and all outside opposition to the party. He entrenched his regime and controlled the population with iron-fisted autocracy until his death from natural causes in the year 2000. Hafez al-Assad remained in power for nearly half a century by making his name and that of his family synonymous with the state itself. Posters and statues of Hafez, as well as his sons Basel and Bashar, were found in every public space up until 2011. This is still the case in areas controlled by the regime. Multiple generations have grown up in this environment, where billboards describe their country as Assad's Syria. Anyone who in any way voices disagreement or dissatisfaction with the Syrian government is a personal enemy of the Assad family, and certain members of that family are not above using state resources to settle personal scores. This has resulted in a society where having personal connections, or wasta, is more important than wealth. Opportunities to engage in legitimate commerce, as well as engage in corruption or racketeering, are doled out by the regime to trusted and favored individuals. Meritocracy is a low priority for the Assad government. Only fear of swift and ruthless reprisal could make a population submit to a system this odious. Almost every Syrian has a story of a family member being detained by one of the country's several domestic intelligence agencies. Sometimes they get a phone call years later from an official claiming that their son, brother, or father has died of a heart attack in custody. Sometimes they never hear anything. Sometimes that family member gets released after months or years in detention, physically scarred and, in some cases, mentally broken from years of torture. Syria is far from the only country where torture is rampant, but the Assad regime's approach to mass torture is a unique one. Torture is almost always intended to elicit quick confessions. At least, that's the excuse used by people with the means and desire to engage in torture. But torture in Syria is intended mainly to inflict terror, to enforce a culture of fear and repression. Most of the time, torturing someone to death is something that torturers tend to avoid, or at least try to. It's counterproductive, perhaps even wasteful, for them to kill their victims. But the Assad regime has different priorities. For the Syrian security services... Torturing people to death is just another day at work. They only need a minority of their prisoners to survive long enough to be released and tell the tale of what happened, to warn other dissidents of what can happen to them if they don't follow the rules and keep their mouths shut. The industrial-scale imprisonment, torture, and murder overseen by the Syrian government is a response to individual disobedience. This micromanagement of society has gotten to the point where the only labor unions and political organizations allowed to exist are those controlled by the government. The typical response to any form of organized opposition, whether peaceful or violent, is collective punishment. By the late 1970s, Syrians from across the political spectrum, from secular liberals to religious conservatives, were sick of Hafez al-Assad's despotic rule. 
His intolerance of dissent, crackdowns on unions, bungled attempts to modernize agriculture and industry, and other economic mismanagement, as well as the fact that his goons were allowed to torture pretty much anyone for any reason, and for Islamists, the fact that he was from the Alawite religious minority, all contributed to a wave of peaceful protests, violent insurrections, and terrorist attacks. Assad's government responded by escalating the violence. They would retaliate against riots and bombings with indiscriminate mortar and rocket fire. Pro-regime militias killed hundreds of people, mostly civilians, in so-called counterterrorism operations, while thousands of prisoners, possibly tens of thousands, were executed or tortured to death by the security services. An assassination attempt against Hafez al-Assad in 1980 led to the government increasing the frequency and severity of their retaliatory massacres. Things finally came to a disgusting climax in 1982 in a place called Hama, a city long associated with conservative Sunni Islam. Somewhere between 500 and 1,000 extremists from the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood allegedly attacked government buildings and police stations and possibly looted armories in the early hours of February 3rd. The government responded to the uprising by having armored units, conventional infantry, paratroopers, and irregular paramilitary groups encircle and besiege the city. We'll go into greater detail about the Hama massacre in a future episode. Long story short, the government indiscriminately shelled insurgent-held areas with artillery and tanks before sending in ground troops to kill any survivors they found in destroyed neighborhoods. They spent the entire month of February going neighborhood by neighborhood, engaging in mass murder and mass rape, showing mercy only to those who could prove their loyalty to the Assad regime. Somewhere between 2,000 and 40,000 Hama residents were killed in the span of a month. Which, again, there was only about 1,000 people directly taking part in the uprising. You could do the math as to how many civilians that adds up to. Somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 people are still missing. It's unclear as to how many of these people were taken prisoner and executed sometime later versus how many people were killed in the initial bombing and their remains simply went undiscovered for whatever reason. No matter how you slice it, though, the Hama massacre was one of the deadliest acts of state violence in modern Middle Eastern history. February of 1982 saw the regime inflict a collective trauma on Hama, as well as the entirety of Syria. The government used the threat of Sunni extremists as an excuse to crack down on any and all forms of dissent, no matter how nonviolent or secular. The massacre provided an example that the regime could point to and imply to dissidents this could happen to your hometown if you're not careful. The Hama massacre quelled the rebellion against Hafez al-Assad, but would ironically sow the seeds for armed resistance against his successor 30 years later. Rania Abu Zaid writes in her book, No Turning Back, quote, Hama's ghosts walked unavenged among the living, a vivid warning of the price of dissent in a nation where memories are long. The 1982 Hama massacre extinguished the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, but the hunting and hounding of suspected sympathizers continued for years. A generation of Sunni children grew up witnessing or hearing about the humiliation of their elders at the hands of Hafez al-Assad, unquote. That was Rania Abu Zaid in her book, No Turning Back, Life, Loss, and Hope in Wartime Syria. 
seriously, of all of all the books you could find about what's happened in Syria since 2011, No Turning Back is one of the best. While the early days of the Syrian revolution in 2011 saw attempts at nonviolent opposition, a new generation of violent extremists, the sons and nephews of those who were persecuted, tortured, or killed in the 1980s, nihilistically rejected peaceful protest and saw the unrest as an opportunity to finish what their elders started. I can't emphasize enough, however, that these people were a minority within the opposition in 2011. Slowly, these far-right religious fundamentalists would gradually hijack the revolution and go on to scorn the liberal activists who first organized protests against the regime's corruption and brutality in the years that followed. Hafez al-Assad was middle-aged and already in poor health in 1982. He had been a physically robust workaholic his entire life, but in the years following the Hama massacre, he was powerless to stop his slow deterioration from diabetes and heart disease. The man who seized absolute control of Syria and ruled it with an iron fist, who presided over a personality cult that worshipped him like a god, died at the age of 69 in June of 2000. He was succeeded by his second son and third choice for the position, Bashar al-Assad. Long story short, Hafez al-Assad spent the last 10 years of his life making sure Bashar al-Assad would be able to take over upon his death. It was thanks to Hafez's machinations that the regime lined up and agreed to put Bashar in his place. Now, when you live in a country where the head of state is referred to as the, quote, eternal president, unquote, things get a little bit weird when that guy dies. Some Syrians were genuinely sad to see Hafez go. They saw him as a stabilizing factor. He portrayed himself as the savior of Syria, and there were some people who bought into that propaganda. It's hard to say for certain how many people genuinely mourned Hafez al-Assad versus those who outwardly did so in order to avoid being tortured. What is clear, though, is that a lot of Syrians were optimistic about Bashar al-Assad. This guy was young. He was new. He wasn't a, a middle-aged general like his dad. He wasn't some closed-off product of the Cold War. He was 33 years old. He was a computer nerd. He was an ophthalmologist who had gone over to the United Kingdom to study. The guy, was, the guy spoke fluent English. People looked to Bashar al-Assad in the year 2000 and thought that there was a chance that this new young leader could oversee progressive change in Syria. This was in part due to him basically saying as much in public appearances. Bashar al-Assad talked a good game about democracy and reform for Syria. But as early as day one, the warning signs were there. For one thing, whenever Bashar talked about democracy or other reforms, he was always very vague about it. That's why, it's, if I sound vague describing it, it's because he was vague in describing it when he gave speeches and talked to world leaders early on. Another serious warning sign was when he was, quote, elected, unquote. It wasn't really an election. It was more like a referendum. Basically, Syrians were given the option of yes or no to Bashar al-Assad. He was literally the only candidate on the ballot of what's not even really an election, a so-called referendum, yes or no. And according to anecdotal evidence, and at least, at least in some cases, there were secret police agents watching people vote in this referendum. So perhaps it's no surprise that Bashar ended up getting like 99% of the vote. Nin it's like 99% of people who voted voted yes. 
I have no idea what happened to the small percentage of people who voted no, but I strongly suspect it didn't end well for them. Bashar al-Assad becoming president, quote-unquote, of Syria was immediately followed by a period known as the Damascus Spring. This was an almost unprecedented period of political activism. This would have been unthinkable if Hafez al-Assad had still been in power. This only happened because people had the impression that Bashar al-Assad was not like his dad. People had the impression that he would listen to them. They did not want to overthrow him. Not in the Damascus Spring. The, the Damascus Spring was about calling for reforms within the system. They thought they could work with Bashar to reform the system, and Bashar screwed them. Window dressing reforms would be immediately followed up by the reimposition of old restrictions. The regime would release political prisoners who had been held for so long they had literally grown old behind bars while arresting the young people who dared to speak out. Bashar al-Assad responded to the Damascus Spring by overseeing an authoritarian resurgence. By late 2001, the Damascus Spring had been crushed, and it was abundantly clear that Bashar al-Assad was just as bad on human rights and political freedom as his dad. One thing Bashar had in common with Hafez al-Assad was that he started having pictures of himself put up everywhere. And this is really common in a lot of dictatorships. It's a it's some sort of weird authoritarian quirk that goes all the way back to ancient times. That's why you see all those statues and murals of rich, powerful people. It's human nature. I want to read a short passage from Yusra Mardini's memoir, Butterfly. I, I found this part that really, I think it illustrates very well what it was like to just see Assad's face everywhere in your normal life. Quote, I train three times a week in the creepy Olympic pool. The main sources of light are long, low windows that run along three sides of the building. Above the glass, fixed metal blinds block out the glaring sunshine. Mounted on one of them, next to the scoreboard, hangs a large portrait of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Unquote. Recap real quick. Quote, mounted on top of one of the fixed metal blinds hangs a portrait of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, unquote. That's insane. <laughs> I'm sorry, just, I know this is me, this is, I'm showing off the fact that I'm not Syrian by saying this, but yeah, like from an, a, from the perspective of somebody who grew up in a free country, you know, where, where I was allowed to vote at the age of 18, where I've always had freedom of speech, when I read stories like this, when I read memoirs from Syrians like Yusra Mardini, when I talk to people from Syria, what they describe is stuff that Americans by and large can't imagine. We have never experienced anything like that. It's part of the reason I wanted to do this show. Yusra Mardini went on to compete in the Olympics shortly after she was forced to flee from Syria. She's got an incredible story, and I highly recommend everybody listening to this Go check out her memoir, Butterfly. By 2002 or 2003 at the latest, whether you love him or hate him, Bashar al-Assad was obviously a dictator. The main area where Bashar differed from his father was economics. The Ba'ath Party had historically called itself a socialist party, but there were left and right-wing factions within it. Hafez al-Assad came from the right-wing faction within the Ba'ath Party, which is why I've been referring to him as a fascist. But Hafez al-Assad was also 
a client of the Soviet Union. So in order to receive support from one of the world's two superpowers at the time, he had to paint himself as a left-wing figure. Bashar al-Assad came to power after the Soviet Union had collapsed. He was, and still is at the time of this recording, a close ally of Russia. But the modern Russian Federation is very different from the Soviet Union that Hafez al-Assad dealt with. As a result, Bashar al-Assad had the freedom to give up pretending to be a socialist. One of the great ironies of the Syrian civil war is that supporters of Bashar al-Assad often use the word neoliberal to describe politicians whom they claim are responsible for the, consp the supposed conspiracy against Assad. But the reality is that Bashar al-Assad, at least for the first 10 years of his rule over Syria, was one of the most economically neoliberal heads of state on earth at the time. In a similar manner to what happened in Russia, he privatized a lot of what had previously been socialist, state-owned enterprises and industries. Gigantic companies owned by billionaires sprang up overnight, very similar to the early years of the Russian Federation. People close to the regime, or perhaps even former government officials, ended up being the business owners. If you see a government privatizing certain industries, and in the West, especially in the United States, we associate that with greater freedom. We associate that with, you know, there's going to be more democracy in this place soon. But as, you, as we see in Russia, Syria, and other places that transition from various forms of communism or socialism to a capitalist system, it doesn't increase freedom. You don't have an increase in equality. It exacerbates inequality. It widens the gap between rich and poor. And it doesn't create very many opportunities either, because the rich people oftentimes were previously government officials who controlled all of this stuff when it was state-owned. Ultimately, this process often results in the same people changing their job descriptions on paper, but in effect, keeping the same position. Bashar al-Assad used this new form of statist capitalism to solidify his position as the undisputed head of state. This would entail doling out opportunities to control the industries we just talked about to people he favored. This would make people billionaires overnight. It's not that the regime would give money to people. The regime would give people favored by Bashar al-Assad the opportunities to get rich. The most prominent example of this is Bashar al-Assad's cousin, Rami Makhlouf. Until his assets were seized in early 2020, Rami Makhlouf was often described as the richest man in Syria, possibly one of the richest people in the world. He was the owner of several companies in Syria, including Syriatel, its largest mobile phone network. Syriatel is basically the Syrian equivalent of AT&T. Rami Makhlouf benefited more from Bashar al-Assad's turn to neoliberalism than anyone else in Syria. One could even argue that he is the personal embodiment of the new crony capitalism that was the Syrian economy. By the mid-2000s, Rami Makhlouf and other members of Bashar al-Assad's extended family were treating the Syrian economy as their own personal estate. At the risk of sounding cliched, as is often the case when the rich get richer, the poor got poorer. The thing about the Syrian economy was that, on top of it being rigged and totally controlled by the dictator and his personal network, it was also predominantly dependent upon agricultural exports. This, of course, is unstable because it, because it depends upon climate and weather patterns. And Syria had the bad luck of experiencing a drought exactly at this point in the mid-2000s. 
it was a real bad drought. You had tons of people forced to move into slums surrounding the cities because they couldn't they couldn't survive in the areas where their families had traditionally lived. You, you had this massive rise in po- unemployment throughout the countryside, which led to people crowding into the cities searching for subsistence. This played a huge role in the unrest that would take place years later. Dr. Samir Anabud writes in his book, Syria, quote, Agricultural productivity slowly declined as government attention turned toward the non-agricultural sectors of the economy. In the 1990s and into the 2000s, there was a gradual movement of rural migrants into the urban peripheries. Most rural migrants had settled in slums around the major cities. The process was so pronounced that one Syrian economist suggested around 20% of the Syrian population lived in some sort of slum village by the late 2000s. Unquote. That was Dr. Samir Anabud writing in his book, Syria. That's another book I highly recommend listeners check out. With this tremendous rise of, I mean, let's just call it what it is, poverty. With this tremendous rise of poverty and inequality in Syria, you also saw a big increase in corruption. In a country where the government controlled just about every facet of everyday life, you had to pay a bribe to get anything done. And these are people paying bribes at a time when unemployment was going up every day. They're spending money that they couldn't afford to spend. And all of this was happening before the Great Recession started in 2008. And Syria did not emerge from that unscathed either. We should take a moment to look at how this affected ordinary Syrians. I want to turn to another book. This is We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled by Wendy Perlman. This is a series of interviews that... Professor Perlman conducted with Syrians from all over the country. I'm going to turn to a couple of quotes describing what it was like to live under Bashar al-Assad prior to 2011, specifically the corruption and income inequality. Quote, The shift to the market enriched some sectors at the expense of others. High-ranking officials and businessmen close to the regime, close to the regime got rich very quickly through their power, not their skills. Unquote. That was Musa, a professor from Aleppo, interviewed by Wendy Perlman. And just one more quick passage. Quote, Corruption increased and increased. You'd have to pay a bribe even to go on the pilgrimage to Mecca, an Islamic obligation. It reached the point that corruption was in everything. Everything. There was corruption before, but not to that extent. Everything was getting worse. Things just added up. The glass of water overflowed. There were so many problems that it was ridiculous. Someone had to go out and just say no, unquote. That was Anas, a doctor from Huta, interviewed by Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. So at a time when poverty was going up, middle class and rich people living in cities like Damascus or Aleppo were living increasingly comfortable lives from the mid to late 2000s. Another, one, another change that took place under Bashar al-Assad was a lifting of restrictions of which products could be imported. It used to be that a lot of things that Americans would take for granted had to be smuggled into Syria when Hafez al-Assad was in charge. But under Bashar al-Assad, Syrians were granted greater access to the outside world, albeit in a controlled, restrained manner that helped people close to the regime get rich. I, I know one guy from Damascus who described a movie theater slash sushi bar that was established in 2009 in Damascus. Yeah, a movie theater with a sushi bar. 
but a majority of the Syrian population didn't get to experience this. A majority of the Syrian population either lived right above or below the poverty line. And it's at this point that we get to a new chapter in this story. This new chapter began in December 2010, when a street vendor in Tunisia responded to being beaten up by cops by setting himself on fire outside of a government building, sparking the Tunisian Revolution and the following wave of protests and uprisings in the MENA region and the wider world. Almost every country in the Middle East and North Africa, including Tunisia, was experiencing unusual economic hardship, specifically a simultaneous increase in cost of living and unemployment. People who had previously been under the poverty line were now struggling just to survive. Corruption and routine abuse of power by government officials and law enforcement ended up sparking a powder keg. Mohamed Bouzizi was a 26-year-old street vendor in Tunisia who was just barely able to, to feed his family under the best conditions. Local police had a tendency to harass him and other people for bribes, but he never had money to spare on their extortion. This would get him singled out for beatings and confiscation of his, of his items. On December 16, 2010, this exact scenario played out once again. He was slapped, spat on, kicked, and the scales he used for weighing vegetables were seized. The cops were probably planning to sell the scales, another way of getting their money's worth out of a guy who is too destitute to bribe them. Bozizi then walked to the nearby governor's office to complain about this and try to get his scales back. He needed them for his livelihood and, and couldn't afford the price of new scales. The governor refused to see him, and Bozizi threatened to set himself on fire as he was kicked out of the building. And it turns out he wasn't bluffing. Bozizi walked to a gas station, or petrol station if you're that kind of English speaker, somehow got his hands on a can of gasoline, and then walked back to the governor's office. Bozizi reportedly shouted, How do you expect me to make a living? Before he doused himself in fuel and set himself on fire. He took almost a month to die from his injuries. Mohamed Bouzizi's suicide struck a chord not only with his fellow Tunisians, but also young people facing similar circumstances throughout the entire region. The subsequent Tunisian revolution inspired similar uprisings across the Middle East and North Africa. It's been called the Arab Spring, but non-Arab peoples such as Kurds, Berbers, and Persians, just to name a few, also protested against corruption, authoritarianism, and untenable cost of living. The protests in the Middle East helped inspire the global wave of protests witnessed in 2011, which included the anti-austerity anti movement in Europe, pro-democracy protests in China, protests against authoritarianism in sub-Saharan Africa, student protests in Chile, and the Occupy movement in the United States. It was in this global wave of protests that the Syrian revolution took place. I want to read, I want to read another short passage from Rania Abuzaid's book, No Turning Back. Quote, Revolution is an intimate, multi-part act. First, you silence the policeman in your head. Then you face the police in the streets. In early 2011, the Middle East was electrified by an indigenous democratic fervor, not the cynical imported kind that exploited the slogans of democracy to cloak military coup and foreign intervention. 
ordinary men and women unlearned fear. Their demands, powerful in their simplicity, ricocheted from Tunisia to Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, and Yemen. Dignity, freedom, bread. Unquote. Now, different people say that in different orders. Some people say dignity, freedom, bread. Some people say freedom, bread, dignity. Some people say bread, dignity, freedom. You get the point. Bread refers to the rising cost of living, specifically food prices. Freedom refers to the authoritarianism found throughout the region, the fact that people weren't allowed to protest, the fact that people weren't allowed to criticize their governments. Dignity kind of ties in with both those aspects. Dignity be refers to being able to stand proud. Because how can you be proud of yourself if your family is starving? How can you be proud of yourself if you're not allowed to express yourself? And while this was a situation that Tunisians faced, it wasn't unique to Tunisia. That's why it spread throughout the Middle East and North Africa. It spread like wildfire. And eventually it reached Syria. At first, Syrians looked at Tunisia as this one weird thing. Wow, that's unusual. It's just one thing happening in one country. But it became something else entirely when it spread, when suddenly there were protests in Egypt. That was a bigger deal. When Hosni Mubarak, the dictator who had run Egypt for decades, when he was overthrown after a very short revolution, less than a month of protests, Mubarak goes down. That's when Syrians really started paying attention. That's when people started to get hopeful. This isn't just a one-time thing in Tunisia. This is the start of a new trend. People started to think maybe it's going to work. And that some people in Syria started to think that maybe they would see something similar happen in their country. Long-standing grievances and new difficulties, plus the brutality one faced for even airing minor criticism combined and caused the Middle East and North Africa to reach a boiling point in 2011. Previous generations were willing to endure oppressive governments as long as they were able to feed their families. By the 2010s, corruption was worse than ever, and people were struggling to survive at a time when the 20th century social contract, obedience in exchange for having one's needs met, had been thrown out the window in the name of neoliberal economic models. A population boom resulting from the rapid adoption of modern medicine and decreased infant-child mortality meant that a generation of young adults were coming of age when there simply weren't enough jobs and necessities to go around. People lost, or at least dulled, their fear of punishment once their situation became hopeless enough. And in large part, the regimes had no way to blame but themselves. They had obsessively controlled politics the economy, and basic aspects of societies to one extent or another. Different countries had different approaches and degrees of severity in when it comes to authoritarianism, but what the Middle East and North Africa have in common is authoritarianism. Some dictators don't stay in power as long. In large part, at least up until 2011, the Middle East and North Africa was a region of dictators. This changed with Tunisia and briefly Egypt. Because of the tendency of these regimes to micromanage, they ended up receiving all of the blame for the increased hardship that people faced in the late 2000s and early 2010s. This contributed to the slogan, The People Demand the Fall of the Regime, Ashab Yurid Eskat on Nazam. When people are saying that, it's they're saying that because they don't believe there's a chance the regime can be reformed. All the various conditions that contributed to protest and revolution throughout the Middle East and North Africa also applied to Syria. 
But Bashar al-Assad, of all people, didn't think so. He was initially optimistic about the Arab Spring, at least he claimed to be, saying that his record as an ardent nationalist who stood up to the U.S. and Israel would protect him from what happened to Ben Ali in Tunisia and Mubarak in Egypt. Regime propaganda tried to spin the protests in neighboring nations as an endorsement of their policies and ideology, but calls for minor reform were immediately labeled foreign conspiracies, with those accused being subject to the full brutality of the Syrian mukhabarat, or secret police. So the Arabic word mukhabarat is basically used as a catch-all for, you know, oppressive security apparatus in Arabic-speaking countries. But the Syrian macabrot, even compared to the ones in neighboring nations, it's up there when it comes to torturing people. But even when Assad was optimistic about the Arab Spring and, and absolutely sure that no such protests would happen in Syria, there were already signs that he was flat out dead wrong. As early as January of 2011, a Syrian man in the city of Hasaka set himself on fire in a similar manner to Mohammed Bouzizi. Increasingly, there were other isolated instances of civil disobedience, things like graffiti, that began to take place in other parts of Syria throughout January, and increasingly so in February. And those small things like graffiti are going to help the situation build up into something much, much bigger. There's another passage in Rani Abizade's book, No Turning Back, that does a really good job explaining perhaps why the Syrian revolution took a little longer to bubble up than what was seen in countries like Egypt or Yemen or Bahrain. Quote, The rules were clear in Assad, Syria. Bread instead of democracy. Subservience for state subsidies. And a measure of stability and security. Rules enforced by fear. Fear of the state's certain and overwhelming retaliation for any move against it, as in 1982 against Islamists, and in 2004 against Syrian Kurds denied citizenship due to their ethnicity. She goes on to write, quote, People like Suleiman couldn't imagine a revolt in Syria, not in a state built on silence and fear and an emergency law. Under the permanent state of emergency, Assad Syria banned public gathering except those officially sanctioned. It arrested people for vaguely defined offenses such as threatening public order, and disturbing public confidence. It monitored everything from phone calls to personal letters and censored media prior to publication. Assad Syria was a macabre state whose intelligence agents didn't bother with the pretense of discretion. They didn't need to. The men in black leather jackets who could make people disappear had legal immunity, quote, for crimes committed while carrying out their designated duties, unquote. That was Rania Abuzaid writing in her book, No Turning Back. Again, I, I can't recommend that book enough, along with Wendy Perlman's We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled and Butterfly by Yusra Mardini. One of the earliest high-profile protests in Syria took place on February 17th, 2011 in Damascus. It happened near a place called the Souk al-Hamidiyah, basically this big ancient marketplace. Long story short, a a random person ended up being beaten up by police officers, which wasn't unusual. I mean, one thing that almost all these countries experiencing the Arab Spring had in common was that police officers regularly engaged in police brutality. So a dude being beaten up by traffic cops in Damascus 
wasn't really unusual. And that's precisely why people were pissed off. People were angry because of how often it happened, kind of like with the George Floyd protests a little bit. So this time around, people see it happening, probably not the first time they've seen it happen in front of them, and they've had enough. People start shouting, the people will not be humiliated. The Syrian people will not be humiliated. Now remember, this is technically illegal. Protests are not legal in Syria, unless they're given permission ahead of time by the government. Basically, unless you're walking around with signs saying that Bashar al-Assad is awesome, barring that, you're not allowed to protest in Damascus, or pretty much anywhere in Syria, legally speaking. At this point, the protest was aimed at police officers who were witnessed engaging in police brutality. This was not an anti-regime protest. However, a government official showed up at the scene of the protest and declared to them, shame on you, this is an anti-government protest. Now, everybody there knew what the consequences for protesting against the government entailed. So there were people in that crowd. This was captured on film, by the way. There were people in the crowd who started chanting, no, no, this isn't an anti-government protest. We love the president. Some of the people who had just now been protesting the police out of sheer terror, they start chanting, God Syria Assad, God Syria Assad, Allah Surya Assad, and other Baathist slogans just to demonstrate their loyalty to the state. Some of them probably did feel that way, but you also have to keep in mind that the consequences for not doing that entail possibly being tortured to death. That's why Syrian dissidents had to operate in secret, even before 2011. Whenever I hear Syrian activists talk about what it was like to organize in secret, in small circles, they'd take out their SIM cards, they sound almost like spies. And when you think about it, it makes sense because they were going up against actual spies. They were going up against intelligence services whose whose main priority was to hunt them down. So you, you couldn't you couldn't just blithely you couldn't just casually say to your friend, yeah, the government sucks. You had to be careful. You had to always be aware of the risk that anyone you talk to could repeat what you said to an informant or somebody who knows an informant. That's another thing, too. The macabre had informants everywhere. There's a saying in Syria, and there's similar variations of this saying in other nations experiencing authoritarian rule, quote, the walls have ears, unquote. So even in the privacy of your own home, you'd still have to be careful. You might never, ever have real privacy. In order to organize protests against this government, it had to be done in absolute secrecy for that specific reason. You never knew just how much surveillance you might be under at any given point. Especially if you had been an activist working underground since, say, 2007. It's 2011 at this point. If, if you've been active that long, somebody probably knows your name or at least a pseudonym you've been using. Now, one advantage that dissidents had was the fact that the Syrian government at that point wasn't very technologically sophisticated. The macabre could and and certainly did hack people's cell phones and hack into computers. But there were so many people with so many smartphones and computers to hack, with so many social media accounts to hide behind, they couldn't keep track of them all. That, that's the problem with the collect-it-all intelligence-gathering mentality. Sometimes you collect too much information to properly analyze. But make no mistake, though, this, being a dissident in Syria trying to organize protests in February of 2011 
was very dangerous. Sometimes you'd have protests that were announced and people just wouldn't show up for one reason or another. It was the following month, March 2011, when things in Syria escalated to a whole new level. At this point, people who had tried to organize protests against corruption and human rights abuses had gotten some experience. They, they were starting to figure out how to secretly plan and organize illegal public gatherings. There's a passage from Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. I think it does a really good job explaining this. She quotes a man named Shafiq from Daraya. Quote, I was working with computers, so I was on the internet 24-7. The events in Tunisia and Egypt looked so easy. Our path was open before us. Freedom and dignity were going to come. The first Facebook page was created, the Syrian revolution against Bashar al-Assad. They began to write, this happened, that happened, somebody did such and such. They set a date, March 5th. The number of people who signed up on this Facebook page reached 12,000. I imagined that 1,000 would show up. We arrived at the Hamadiyya market in Damascus. The first person to start shouting was a man. Word spread that he was from the regime and was encouraging people to protest so that so that they could arrest us. Unquote. That right there, like that's a sign. That's how people. That's how scared people were that the regime had informants everywhere. And frankly, they weren't wrong. There were informants everywhere. That's a fact of life for dissidents in a country like Syria. You got to be careful. You can't just speak out in public. Usually, that's why what happened in 2011 was so special. All right, now back to Shafiq, quoted by Wendy Perlman. Quote. Then this girl spoke out. Her dad had been arrested in 1982. She shouted, God, Syria, freedom, and nothing else. No one joined her. To be honest, I was scared. Everyone was watching. But Syrians always feel affected by the bravery of a woman. A woman is not braver than me, so I'll join. Unquote. That's very, very unwoke, but oh well. Back to the quote. So I joined in. Allah, Surya, Haraya. That's God, Syria, freedom. Then the security cars came. I withdrew. I moved back and watched. The security forces arrived with sticks, and they started to beat protesters. Unquote. That was Shafiq, a university graduate from Daraya, quoted by Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. I, I know some people probably heard that, heard this dude saying, a woman is not braver than me. <laughs> probably took issue with that. I can't blame you. Like, that is, uh... Yeah, that's plain old sexism, but uh, as uh, chauvinistic as that sounds, you do you can see how it ties in with what I said at the beginning of the episode. Most people aren't willing to be the first person who breaks a precedent, but if they see someone break that precedent before them, if they see someone do it right in front of them, they might be more willing then to join in. Now, you might remember that I said that small things like graffiti were going to lead to big things happening. Well, in March of 2011, graffiti on a wall contributed to all hell breaking loose in a city called Dara. This is one of the points in our story where the line between history and anecdote is kind of blurred. This isn't what what I'm about to tell you. It's there 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 is some facts in it, but there's also a lot of lore, a lot of stuff that was spread by word of mouth. It's hard to say exactly what happened. It's hard to say exactly how true the following story is, but it's generally agreed upon that something like this happened. 
At some point in February of 2011, somebody wrote anti-regime graffiti on the wall of a school in Dara. The regime responded by arresting a ton of people, most of whom had nothing to do with it. It was widely reported that the regime was arresting children, specifically specifically students, for having written that on the walls. That's not entirely accurate. It was predominantly men, but there were also people under the age of 18 who got caught in the dragnet. And they were all reportedly subject to torture. Some of them are said to have had their fingernails removed in custody. But regardless of the age of those detained, this was in no uncertain terms, unadulterated brutality in response to writing something on a wall. Even people who support waterboarding terrorists, for example, could probably look at this and go, yeah, that was uncalled for. And by March, the families of the people who had been detained were trying to figure out what had happened. Were their relatives still alive or not? And at this point, revolutionary lore holds that the Mukabrat officer in charge of Watching over Dara at the time, a cousin of Bashar al-Assad named Ataf Najib cursed at and insulted the parents of those who had been detained on suspicion of having written the graffiti on the wall. Supposedly, these parents asked him, you know, where are our children? Najib allegedly replied, forget about your children. If you want kids, make new ones. If you don't know how... Send your wives to my men, and we'll knock them up for you, unquote. There are various, there are different variations of that alleged quote from Atef Najib, but whether or not he actually said that, it, it says a lot that Syrians would hear that and say, yeah, that sounds like something a guy in his position would say. It says a lot about the regime that people would believe this when they heard it. Ronnie Abuzaid writes in her book, No Turning Back, quote, In the southern city of Dara, bordering Jordan, some two dozen young men and teenagers had been rounded up by security forces, blamed for scribbling anti-regime graffiti. The Dara children, as they were dubbed in the media, weren't children, and many had nothing to do with the writing on the walls, but tales of their harsh treatment in custody, real and embellished, sparked protests for their release, demonstrations that ignited the Syrian revolution in mid-March and christened Dara as its birthplace. Protesters shed the pretense of pan-Arab solidarity and called for reform, but not regime change, in Syria. Unquote. That was Rani Abuzaid writing in her book, No Turning Back. So, that right there. Reform, but not regime change. At this point, that is the key thing to remember. Nobody yet at least very few people have called for the regime to actually be overthrown, unlike what you've seen in Tunisia and Egypt. In those countries, people were very quickly saying, Ashab Yurid, Scott Al-Nazam, the people demand the fall of the regime. We're not there yet in Syria. But it's directly because of what takes place in March 2011 that it ends up getting to that stage. So in March of 2011, even before things get really crazy on March 15th, you have a lot going on in terms of protests and civil disobedience spread out throughout the country. On March 7th, a day before the anniversary of one of the main coup d'etats that brought the Ba'ath Party to power, political prisoners begin a hunger strike. And it doesn't stop there. From March 12th to March 15th, you see thousands of Kurds in the cities of Kamishli and Hasaka protest against institutional discrimination on the anniversary of the 2004 Kamishli riots, which we will examine in greater detail in a future episode. 
So we're going to conclude this episode with a look at what happened on March 15th, 2011. This is the date that most people commonly use to, to mark the beginning of the Syrian revolution. Although some people disagree and say it began either before or after March 15th. I think at this point, after having listened to me rant about this for over an hour, you can kind of understand why. So March 15th is the date most commonly cited as day one of the Syrian civil war. The civil disobedience and armed conflict are often described as separate phases, but the two would gradually overlap over the next two years. For now, we're still a few episodes away from groups known collectively as the Free Syrian Army engaging in combat against the regime. I promise you, though, we will get there very soon. So, on to March 15th, 2011. The important thing about March 15th, in addition to what happened, in addition to the actual facts of what took place, the the other important thing is how it impacted Syria. It How made Syrians look at their country and at the protests that were taking place. On March 15th, while Dara is heating up in rebellion against Ataf Najib, you also have simultaneous protests taking place in other major cities. You've got protests going on in Damascus, Aleppo, Hasaka, Derazor, and even Hama. Yeah, yeah, Hama, where the Hama massacre took place in 1982. Even they rose up against the regime on March 15th, 2011. There were thousands of people protesting all across Syria. March 15th, 2011 is when the Syrian revolution shifted from being a localized affair to being a national phenomenon. So the fact of the matter is that this is huge and unprecedented, if not just downright shocking in a country where protesting is illegal. A, a really good description of this, I think, comes from Qasem Eid's memoir, My Country. Qasem Eid was a resident of the Damascus suburb Modamiya at the time in M March 2011. Qasem Eid writes in his memoir, quote, On the 15th of March 2011, Syrians in the southern city of Dara staged massive demonstrations against the detention and torture some school children who had written the Arab Spring protest chant, the people want to bring down the regime. This was a definitive moment, the moment at which the regime showed itself capable of the extraordinary cruelty, violence, and disregard for human rights that it had so far kept under wraps. It was exposed, and across the country, citizens were ready to rise. Something was taking shape in Syria. You could feel it in the air. I'd spent so long thinking that this day would never come, and when it did... I was unprepared. He goes on to say, quote, If children in Dara could openly call for the downfall of the regime, I had no excuse. And that was Qasem Eid writing in his memoir, My Country. Now, again, as we pointed out with the quotes from Rania Abuzaid, not all of that was factually accurate. It wasn't exactly school children, with a few exceptions, who had been detained and tortured by the regime. But there were people under the age of 18 who were detained and tortured. There were people who were detained and, more importantly, tortured. You know, regardless of how old you are, that's wrong. And the fury that people were feeling at the time, probably understandable. You know, nobody likes hearing about their government torturing teenagers for, for writing graffiti on a wall. That's just plain outrageous. So you have the, you have the outrage going on in the moment as well as everything that had been building up for decades that we talked about over the last almost 
hour and a half now. The repression, the lack of freedom of speech, the lack of political freedom, the fact that any form of protest that wasn't approved in advance by the government was illegal. It created an, an environment of bottled up anger, bottled up frustration, all this repressed feeling. When people finally let it out, it came out in force, a massive groundswell. People who'd been forced to, to stay silent for their own safety now felt able to speak their mind and say how they felt about the government because there was strength in numbers. It's really difficult to describe to people who have lived with freedom of speech their entire lives. It's really, it's hard for people who have spent their entire life living in a free country. It's hard for them to understand how liberating and just awe-inspiring it is to finally air your grievances for the very first time. Especially when, when doing so would usually get you arrested or killed. This was something that many people in the Middle East and North Africa experienced in early 2011, especially Syria. This is why the Arab Spring is so special. I want to read a couple more quotes from Wendy Perlman. So Wendy Perlman, in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, she quotes a couple of people who took part in the protest. One of them is a Sana, a graphic designer from Damascus. And she quotes Sana as having said, quote, I was very scared on my way to the demonstration. It was night. We put scarves over our faces so the security forces couldn't recognize us and walked through narrow streets to the square. The square was lit and people were playing music with drums and flute. I don't know who grabbed my hands from the left or the right, but we started singing and dancing and jumping. It was a party to overthrow the regime. At that moment, I stood together with strangers dancing and shouting to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. My husband and I agreed that only one of us would protest at a time. One would go, the other would stay, just in case something happened. He went to a demonstration before I did, and came home very emotional. He was crying. Anyone who doesn't live this moment cannot consider himself alive. When I came back from my first demonstration, he asked me how it was. I told him he was right. That was Sana, a graphic designer from Damascus, quoted by Wendy Perlman. And she also quotes another protester, Shadi, an accountant from Hama. Quote, my first protest was better than my wedding day, and when my wife heard me say that, she didn't talk to me for a month. Unquote. I love that passage. That was Shadi, an accountant from rural Hama, quoted by Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. And if you're trying to get like a dry academic historical understanding of what took place chronologically in Syria, it's not the best source. I mean, but if you want to understand what it was try to get an understanding for what it was like for people to experience it, there's nothing better. I highly recommend everybody get a copy of We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled by Wendy Perlman. I know I might have sounded inconsistent when I said that people were calling for the regime to be reformed, not overthrown, but that first person quoted just mentioned wanting to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. The quotes are a little, maybe a little out of chronological order, but she uses the quotes in the book to tell the story of what happened. And for that reason, we are definitely in Wendy Perlman's debt for that. Again, though, at this point, March 15th, 2011, most people weren't openly saying they wanted to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. Most people were basically, most people were calling upon Assad to deliver on his own rhetoric of reforming the system. It's like, hey, man, you've been talking about this since the year 2000. It's 2011, and you still haven't reformed anything. We want you to, to reform it. 
Bashar al-Assad did have a chance to listen to the people and enact reforms. He could have done it in 2000. He could have done it in 2006. He, he, and he still could have done it now, even on March 15th, 2011. But of course, one thing that Bashar al-Assad didn't have in 2000 or 2006 were these widespread protests. Widespread protests in a country where protesting has long been illegal. In the year 2000, Bashar al-Assad didn't have people experiencing what many of them would go on to describe as, quote, their second birthday, unquote, when they go out into the streets and take part in a demonstration for the first time. So now at this point, Bashar al-Assad is in kind of a bind. But even still, even still, he could have listened to the protesters. He could have delivered on his own rhetoric and enacted reform. I'm not saying this to defend Bashar al-Assad. I'm saying this to point out that he made a mistake at this point. And we're going to see how that played out in the following episodes. In this episode, we've seen what happens when people who have been silenced for generations finally speak out. When authoritarian governments come to see their citizens as property, the people will inevitably respond in some shape or form. If things get bad enough, they'll lose their fear of punishment by those in power. In a country where all media is censored by the government, and people never publicly talk about politics for fear of being overheard and reported to the authorities, shouting out after being forced to stay silent is as cathartic as it is addictive. The next month we'll see protests break out all over Syria, as this phenomenon spreads like wildfire. However, attempts by the opposition to keep the revolution peaceful will not be reciprocated by the regime. Tear gas and other measures used by police will soon be replaced by heavily armed soldiers and pro-government street thugs who are more than willing to spray entire crowds with live ammunition. The regime will look at the chaos spreading across Syria and eventually decide to pour fuel on the fire, hoping that their opponents will get burned worse. You're listening to What Happened to Syria. Follow us on Twitter at SyriaPod so that you can stay up to date with our episodes. You can email us at what happened to Syria podcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash what happened to Syria to access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for just $5. You can also get fan requested content and a shout out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20 a month. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.